Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Praise the name of Jesus. Stand up for a second. Shake it out. You've been sitting for a little bit. I got a good sermon out. I want you to fall asleep in the middle of it. Jump up and down a minute if you have to. Praise the Lord. Thank you. All right. You can sit down. Thank you. Uh, hey, uh, Good Friday, which is March 30th, I think. We are participating as a church in the uh, community Good Friday service. This was actually um, suggested by the Methodist pastor. He spoke here. Many of you were here for that at the uh, community Thanksgiving service, and he really enjoyed it. He's, he's, an, he's the new pastor in town, and he suggested that could we get together more often than just once a year. I said, well, did you have mine? He said, Good Friday service. He's willing to host it. I told him we weren't uh, because... <laughs> That's the same week we have Hagen's. We'll have the, the Hagen meetings here. We'll be pretty busy Monday, Tuesday, and, or sorry, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. I didn't want to turn around and host another meeting Friday night. So he's going to host it. Uh, I'm just invite, I'm, I'm inviting you, okay? No, again, no pressure. I think you'll enjoy it. I think it'll be good. Uh, it'll be us, the Church of Christ, and the Methodists. The Lutherans have got their own thing going on during Holy Week, so they won't be with us for that. Uh, but I encourage you to join us if you can. Also, as a reminder, one last fun thing before we get into the Word of God, which is going to be fun in its own way. Uh, Wednesday night we were talking about, uh, uh, I was mentioning this seminar that, uh, Matt Kreider and Mike Mack and myself went to, uh, that, uh, Urbana Theological Seminary hosted on Jonathan Edwards. And we talked about a uh, preacher named Joseph Cotton and how a man named Cotton Mather had written about Joseph Cotton's second big sermon and how the learned men who were listening to the sermon did not approve of it, and they demonstrated their disapproval by what? By not humming. And so what I was training, started training us to do Wednesday night, because the explanation of this, and you can get Wednesday night's message and listen to the excerpt that I read, but what they did, instead of shouting amen or go preach or anything like that, when they heard something they liked, something that moved them, something that they were impressed by, instead of saying amen, they would go, hmm. And it really sounded good. We did that several times Wednesday night. My dad suggested that we get really well-versed in the hmm and the humming, become a good humming church, so that when Hagans do get here, <laughs> might be, might be a little curveball we could throw at him just for fun, you know? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Hmm. 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 So, yeah. All right. Children, you don't want to hear my sermon? Off you go. Let's give a hand to our Sunday school students and teachers as they go. Last week, we are in the book of Acts. Uh... And we are not getting through it in a very big hurry because, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. I, I hope you are too. There's some, there's some stuff here that I just, I don't want to skip over it. It's important in the development of the church. And there's some things that we're going to hear today and see today that I believe are going to bless you. But last week we looked at the episode of Paul in Athens at Mars Hill debating and, and actually sharing with the Athenian philosophers about the unknown God. Do you remember? He has this conversation. He's vexed in his spirit. He's walking through the city and he sees all these idols. And so when he goes to the place where actually they have these public, uh, you know, they take turns speaking. 
uh, might, might have been debates going on, but they would talk with one another. Said they used to gather their own just because they wanted to hear the latest thing. And I wanted you to notice, because we didn't spend any time on it last Sunday, when he introduced his subject, what he's talking about is this statue with the inscription, The Unknown God. And I gave you what I felt is a great account of the background. And it wasn't my account. It was somebody else's. But I think it's a great explanation of the background of that particular inscription, The Unknown God. But when he opens his discourse, he says, uh, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all respects you are very religious. Uh, Some people have interpreted him to be saying, actually, you're very superstitious, that he came out, he kind of came out swinging. Hey, men of Athens, I see that you're very superstitious. You're over-religious because look at all these idols. I don't think that was really his heart. I think what he was doing was finding some common ground. I think he was commending them for their, uh, at least recognizing that religion, that worship was a central part of who they were supposed to be. as the family of man. I think he was looking for some opening there. I think it's it's good apologetics to find some common ground with the person you're trying to convince. Hey, let me tell you something good about you guys. You're, you've not shut the door on religion. You're very religious. Uh, man, you've got statues to every god. In fact, I saw one with this inscription, and that's the one I want to talk to you about. So anyway, it's just something I like his approach there. Uh, but we're done with that for now. I want to go uh, moving on here. Uh, Oh, where am I? I am in Acts chapter 18 now. And I got to be honest with you, I wrote this sermon out and I was going over it this morning and early on in my notes, I, I kind of saw something and started thinking about something and my sermon took a completely different turn. So we may not get through this whole message uh, today because I'm not going to keep you here super long. We, I know we've had a, a busy service already and that's okay. Uh, but it might go a little bit different direction than I originally planned. Just bear with me. And you ain't going to know the same way because you don't know what direction I originally planned. But in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. You've heard of Corinth, right? And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Now, maybe you've heard the phrase tent maker missionaries or tent maker ministers. It refers to bivocational ministers, people who go either onto the mission field or take a church, but rather than receive a paycheck uh, for their full support, they actually get a secular job. They raise their own support on the mission field field or in the town, this is where that phrase comes from, because this is what Paul did. The premier apostle, evangelist, missionary gets a job there working with Priscilla and Aquila, making tents to support himself. Now, I want you to understand when he writes the Corinthians later, he makes a very strong case for the principle that those who preach the gospel ought to get their living from the gospel. So you can't use the tent maker, and I'm not being self-defensive here. You guys know I get a paycheck. I get paid for what I do here. This is my occupation, all right, and my calling. Uh, But Paul is the one who makes that case stronger than anybody. So this is the way it ought to be. And when he writes to the to the Corinthians about this, he says, you know, listen, I did this. It's it's the same pattern we've seen with Paul. 
the man who said uh, that being Jewish has absolutely no value in terms of your salvation did maintain Jewish vows, Jewish customs. He observed them. He preferred them. He had Timothy circumcised for the sake of the Jews, not for the sake of Timothy. Once again, it's a great example of Paul not standing on his rights, but deferring to the people around him and fulfilling his responsibilities and his call. All right. And we have another, we have an interesting but somewhat confusing account here of another attempt by the Jews to deal with Paul through the civil powers. We, uh, when we, he gets settled in Corinth and, uh, you know, he starts in the synagogue as usual and he's joined uh, by his traveling companions and then he's opposed by the Jews. And so he kind of says, forget it. I'm not going to bother you guys anymore. I'll just go talk to the Gentiles. And, uh, staying with a guy named Justice. And then it says uh, he was there there for some time. He stayed there for a year and a half. And uh, he was opposed again, a year and six months. And somewhere in that stay, another governor, a proconsul comes named Gallio. Um, And when Gallio shows up, the leader of the synagogue, uh, and the Jews, they go to Gallio and say, hey, this Paul, he, uh, keep in mind, we, it's a real frustrating thing, because, and we've talked a little bit about it before, and I hate to see this pattern. The Jews don't like Paul. Uh, because if Paul's message is successful, then they see, especially the Jewish leadership, they see their importance in the grand scheme of God's plans shrinking. And so they're the ones opposing him. Only uh, they won't, they can't really, when they try to oppose him in debate or from the scriptures, he's better than they are. God is with him, obviously. And so they cheat. And so they always try to turn it into a civil matter. So they go to Gallio, the new guy, and they say, hey, Gallio, uh, there's this guy, Paul, who's training people to worship God in a manner that's really illegal. And this is something they've tried before. You know, if people really listen to this, Paul, what they're really doing is uh, they're going against Caesar. And you don't want any part of that, do you? Uh, Gallio listens, and Gallio's no dummy. And he listens to their case, and he says, you know what? Uh, this sounds like a religious problem to me. If, if you can show me some crime he's committed, show me. But I don't see one. This is a matter for you guys to settle among yourselves. Uh, it's an, it's, and I'm, I'm glad to see him respond like that. But I want you to see what happens then in Acts chapter 18. Uh, verse, well, by the way, we're up to about A.D. 52 now. In uh, chapter 18, verse 16, it says, And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Now, this is a weird thing, uh, because earlier on, it says that I think Crispus was the uh, head of the synagogue. But keep in mind, he was there for a year and six months. By this time... They, have, they got a new pro, proconsul, Gallio, and they probably have a new head of the synagogue, Sosthenes. But it's the Jews that go before Gallio this time uh, and make their case. And when, they, when he, they get shot down, it says here, the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him. Some translations say it was uh, the Jews that took Sosthenes and beat him. How many of you have got a translation that says the Jews beat Sosthenes? Anybody? Oh, we're all reading from the same book here, probably. You guys are you're reading from uh, uh, New King James. But let me tell you uh, which I think it was, why it could be either. And then I'm going to go back and look at something that we skipped over a little bit on purpose. Uh, the Greeks liked Paul. 
when he went into the synagogue and the Jews opposed him, the Greeks actually uh, were very, they gave him a pretty warm reception. It's one of the reasons he was there so long. He was very effective among them. And uh, so when they witnessed the Jews going before Gallio to try to have Paul arrested, and then once they, they felt emboldened by the failure of the Jews to do this, and in their boldness, they seized the leader, Sosthenes, and beat him. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that Sosthenes himself was converted and that this enraged the Jews, and so the Jews beat him. Or the Jews beat him for failing to make his case forcefully enough and was converted later. Why do I say he was converted in both of those? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and you can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read the opening verse. And you remember when they were writing letters back in, there, instead of a, uh, they would sign it, they would open it with uh, what we would close it with. Hey, it's me, Paul, writing to you. And uh, so he opens this. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes actually co-writes 1 Corinthians with Paul. So at some point he's beaten. I believe he's beaten by the Jews. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's like I said, it can be a little bit confusing reading that, cause, but you've got to keep in mind there's a passage of time there. I want to back up and look at this. Back in Acts uh, 18, uh, verse 8, says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. Nice to see that pattern continuing, right? Households being saved. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Hearing what? Not just hearing the gospel, hearing that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed. There was something about Crispus's conversion that opened the door and encouraged the belief of many of the Corinthians. And that's interesting the way that works, and it continues to work that way. We have... uh, I've I've made mention of this before. I don't think there's any denying it. But it's something we also kind of have to wrestle with. It is often more exciting and moving to hear the testimony of a person, a man or a woman, who comes to Christ later in life. And obviously, the bigger a hellion they were before their salvation experience, the more exciting the testimony, right? Uh, And every one of us, uh, I'm sure, can name a speaker or an individual who had a great effect on us when they shared that kind of testimony. When we saw, hey, wow, the last time I saw that guy, he was like this, and now look at him. Or it might be a stranger, but he tells us, I came from this kind of background. Here's how God changed me. It's a powerful thing to hear these stories. So you got somebody, here's Crispus, who, leader of the synagogue, and of course it's the synagogue Jews, by and large, that are opposing Paul. And so when the leader of the synagogue converts, this has an effect, probably on other Jews, but certainly on the uh, Corinthians, the Greeks there in town. Paul himself... This turns out to be his greatest apologetic. And with Paul, you've got somebody who has got all the credentials in the world, highly trained, 
highly educated, super smart, got all the background. Uh, so he could and did, you know, he debated from the scriptures. But we'll see uh, again and again as he goes up the chain. In a few chapters here, he goes through a major life change and gets bounced from one court to the next and gets a chance to tell his testimony in open court a number of times. The story he tells is of his powerful conversion experience on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians. This is exactly the kind of story we would hear in uh, in some full gospel businessmen's fellowship meeting from the 70s. Let me tell you what a rotten person I was. I had letters. I was on my way to kill Christians. I was going to throw them in jail. Nobody was more passionately against the church than I was. And then I was blinded. I was knocked down. And I heard Jesus Christ himself spoke to me. And this is why I'm passionate about this. And people heard that. He didn't. Not that, he'd ever, not that he didn't ever do this. I believe we have a whole letter of him laying out his Jewish credentials and, and uh, examining Christianity from that uh, perspective in the book of Hebrews. We can't prove Paul wrote Hebrews. I'll tell you when we get there why I think he did. But uh, when Paul was preaching, he preached about that. Let me tell you about the kind of guy I was and what changed me. Let me tell you about this event that changed me. This was his most powerful message. For everything else that he had in his pocket, that was the one he went to. That was his go-to message. Uh, but here's the thing. As excited as I am and as motivated and encouraged as I am when I read about a rotten person coming to Christ and what a powerful testimony it is, as a father, as a pastor, I don't want to see our young people go through that phase. I want to raise children who know the Lord from an early age and pursue him perfectly. When I say perfectly, I mean in a mature manner. Not that they won't make mistakes. They certainly will. So don't speak that over my kid. My kid's not going to make mistakes. Your kid's going to make mistakes. But they don't have to go into a period of five years of backsliding. They don't need to go out there and embrace the world with all their heart just so they can have a testimony. As a pastor and as a father, the testimony I want my children to have and the testimony I want your children to have is, man, I came to Christ as soon as I could understand the gospel. I embraced it. And I haven't been perfect, but I've followed him as well, as well as I could my whole life. I've grown up knowing the Bible. I've grown up in the church, and I wouldn't choose any other life. That's the testimony I want my kids to have. Now, can God use that testimony to reach people? Yes, he can. But let's be honest. Is that ever going to be as exciting as a testimony like Paul's? No, it's not. I'll just say it's not. But listen to me. We need to be okay with that. I got a question for you. How many people, uh, you, you've heard me use this phrase, that uh, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live, right? This is what the gospel is about. During his earthly ministry, do you know how many people Jesus raised from the dead? Three. You could probably name two of them. You might be able to name all three. The least known of the three is probably the son of the widow of Nain. The second 
would be Jairus's daughter. Who's the third? If you went out on the street today, even ask an unbeliever, can you think of one person Jesus raised from the dead? Who would they probably answer with if they knew anything? Everybody's heard of Lazarus. Everybody's heard of Lazarus. Why? You know why? A couple reasons. One is, Lazarus and Jesus were close. He was a friend of Jesus. He was connected to Lazarus' family. There was an emotional connection. Jesus wept is in the Lazarus story, and everybody knows that verse. But you know why else? Lazarus was dead the longest. When Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb, look, Jairus' daughter had just died. He was on his way to heal her. He just didn't get to the house fast enough. They met him practically on his way up the stairs saying, don't bother, it's too late, she's dead. And he puts everybody out of the house, goes in there, Talitha kum, child arise. Give her something to eat, she goes on her way. The son of the widow of Nain was dead, but he hadn't been buried yet. They were on his way out with the funeral procession. All right, And they typically uh, dressed them for burial on the day they died. So Jesus met, went up to the coffin and raised this guy. Lazarus was, bare, was mummified, buried, and the tomb was sealed. In fact, when he got there and he indicated he was going to the tomb, what did they say? Don't do that. He stinks by now. Lazarus was so dead he was rotting. And he has him roll the stone away and says, Lazarus, come forth. This is why we remember Lazarus, is because he was the most rotten. (laughs) Now, when God resurrects you, when he grants you new life, it is going to make a bigger impact if you were more rotten when he got to you. We need to be okay with that. There were two sons in a story that Jesus told of a wealthy man One of them was a good, loyal son who never went anywhere. The other one was the one who practically expressed to his father, you're more good to me dead than alive. In other words, give me my inheritance now because that's what I really want for you. And takes it and spends it and spends himself broke, winds up slopping the hog, sleeping with the pigs, eating worse than they do, crawls back to his father. And so you've got a story of a good son and a story of a bad son. And what do we call that story? We call it the story of the bad son. We name the story after the prodigal son. Now, if you've got two sons, or if you've got your choice, which son do you want your son to be if you've got one son? I want my son to be the son who stays, stays loyal, works hard, doesn't leave, doesn't just want what I can give to him. If I'm going to write a story, if I'm going to dedicate a story, I'm going to dedicate it to that son. Why why is it a story of the prodigal son? Because there's something in us that resonates with every bit of that. Or something in that story that resonates with us. Why? Because we all see some of ourselves in that. We all look at a moment in our lives or a period or phase in our lives where we wandered, where we strayed, and we are refreshed and relieved and we weep to know that when we come to our senses, God just doesn't see us from afar off and wait. He runs out to greet us. And we think, well, how is that fair to the good son? What does the prodigal son's father say to the non-prodigal son? Basically, what have you lost by being here the whole time? 
Yeah, we're celebrating because he was dead and now he's alive. Those are the words he used. We're celebrating because he's back. You never had to sink to those depths. Why can't you just rejoice in the fact that you didn't have to sleep with the pigs? Everything I have is yours. Not just your future inheritance. You get to enjoy all of my property, all of my stuff, because you're in my house. I love you. It's always been yours. We need to be okay when the spotlight goes onto the person who blew it and comes back. We need to be okay if their ministry launches into something bigger than ours. Don't we? Can we just rejoice that God is using that person? Because this is what's happening with Paul. There were people who were more famous, who were less damaging to the church before their conversion than Paul was. And part of that is what God used to make Paul so effective. And certainly we see the same thing here with Crispus. Okay? Let's keep going anyway, all right? Can you give me another 40 minutes? No, 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 you don't have to do that. Let's get through a little bit of history here. Uh, so uh, Paul takes off again. This is after the whole Sosthenes thing. And he goes to Ephesus for a very brief visit. And then after an even briefer visit to Jerusalem, goes back to Antioch, which you may remember is his base of operations, and then takes off on his third missionary journey. Uh, We also meet Apollos around this time, who was a very gifted and extraordinarily effective preacher. We see him uh, being kind of mentored by Priscilla and Aquila. And then he returns to Ephesus. Uh, And in chapter 19... um, Verse 1, chapter 19, 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, I point this out because just to remind you that this same pattern is, is continuing. The rebaptizing thing there, I don't know. It's the only time we see that happening. They were disciples. I think it couldn't be clear that these were already believers. They were already believers, but they didn't have a full understanding. Uh, apparently, the, the word of Pentecost had not come to them yet. And so... Um, but Paul, Paul has them baptized in the name of Jesus. Then he lays his hands on them so that they receive the Holy Spirit. And what happens? They begin to speak in other tongues. And this is the same pattern we have seen earlier and earlier. It wasn't just a one-time thing on Pentecost. This is how uh, the Holy Spirit manifested himself. It was the initial evidence. Again, I'm not the guy who stands up here and says, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. But I, I'm also the guy that says, if you are filled with the Spirit, you can and should speak in tongues. All right? I'm not going to do a whole sermon on that. We did one not too long ago. If you've got questions, be glad to answer them later. Or you can stick around long enough to hear me preach it on again someday. Then, in, uh, continuing in chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. This is an interesting little thing here. Uh, 
But I want you to, I, this is one of those things we've got to be careful about. I think we probably have done it in this church where we have laid hands on cloths, towels, and things like that. Have we practiced that here? It's been a while. Uh, but people bring prayer cloths. We just call them prayer cloths. Let's bring them here. We'll pray them, and then you take them to your sick loved one. Uh, and I've heard testimonies where that works. It's one of those things, again, we've got to be careful. This is one of those moments, you've heard me talk about them before, where we have some, uh, uh, something being talked about in Scripture that I would have to say is descriptive. It's an accurate representation. This is something that happened, but there's nothing in this passage that says this is how you should do it. What did Jesus say to do? He said, heal the sick. Uh, James writes later, lay hands on the sick. Jesus said, lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. So we're to pray for them, heal them, lay hands on them. However, there's nothing that tells us carry cloths to them. Tony Cook tells a funny story about, because they, they used to do this at Rama. It would be part of the, 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 the um, service, might still be, where they, they would bring. And as they're praying, they're quoting, over this, ver- quoting this verse, and, and, and Tony Cook uh, would typically pray something like, just as they carried handkerchiefs and aprons from Paul, we believe that these towels are going to carry the spirit of faith. Only instead of saying aprons, he said apricots. There's absolutely no spiritual significance to that. He was just sharing that with us, and I shared it with you. Thank you, Lord, for blessing these handkerchiefs and apricots. All I want you to see, not all I want you to see, number one is God can work through any means he desires. All right? That's probably lesson number one. He's not going to be limited by legalism. And if somebody says, well, you can only be healed if the elders lay, uh, anoint you with oil. Uh, that because that's what the Bible says. That's not true. Jesus himself healed in many different ways. And this is one of the ways Jesus healed through Paul's ministry. But I also want you to see it says that the, the Holy Spirit was working and God was working unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Well, unusual miracles. Is that, uh, is that a redundancy? Aren't miracles by definition unusual? Uh, yeah. However, if it says unusual miracle, I think that we need to take that for what it means. This is not something that we are commanded to go out and pray for. But let's be led by the Spirit, okay? And, and these rags, by the way, the, the picture there, and this is spelled out, I think, in my uh, Spirit-filled life Bible. I read it somewhere, and, this, and that's not the Bible I have here. They weren't rags that people brought to him and said, Paul, pray for this. He had an apron on from, from his work. A tent maker might also mean leather worker. So he had these work aprons. He had sweat rags tied around his head, and they were just taking these things from Paul, carrying them to people. It's sort of this residual anointing. You know, like we saw the bones, uh, bones of Elisha. They, they dug a grave and threw these guys into it. And when they, the dead bodies came in contact with Elisha's bones, they were reanimated and popped up out of the hole. This side of thing. These things that happen, but not necessarily that we can expect and pray for. God's got way. Healing is ours, right? Whether, whether he uses uh, handkerchiefs, aprons, apricots, or anything, right? Uh, we can still believe for healing. How he does it. Sometimes let's follow the things that he has told us to do and be led uh, any way he decides to, to lead us. Now, next big thing that happens, we have an account of this riot. Um, well, let me read this first here. I, I'll go as quick as I can. I just don't have a good stopping place, so let me just not stop yet. Uh, in verse 13, still in chapter 19, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And many who had believed 
And many who had believed came confessing and telling their needs. Sorry, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their needs. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And much as I would like to go further than that, I think I'm going to wrap up with some commentary on this, and then we will uh, continue next week. The uh, first thing is this is a, I, I love this story for some reason. I've thought, I love the uh, old King James where it says, we adjure you, or I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They can see the power in Paul's ministry, right? And obviously, some of the things that Paul is doing, just as Jesus had said it would be, he said, heal the sick, cast out devils. Uh, and there clearly were demon-possessed people, and there clearly are today too. But these people were so impressed with the process, it's very much like, I see it anyway, very much like when the sorcerer saw that the Holy Spirit was given to people through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He could see that that Peter and John are laying their hands on people, and the next thing you know, these people are speaking in tongues. And Simon says, here, let me give you this money, and you make it so that I can do that too. I just want to be able to lay my hands on people so that they can speak in tongues when I do that. And, of course, they, they tell him, get lost, and uh, try to hopefully they took him aside and explained it a little further later how, why this works and what was important about it. Uh, but the thing is, a Christian can. It didn't have to be an apostle laying his hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. The problem was he was trying to buy it. He was trying to buy the ability for the, for the ability's sake itself. And I think these people who saw the demons coming out of the people that Paul exercised were not moved with compassion to see the deliverance of the people who were possessed. They weren't moved with righteous indignation against the, the, the demons themselves. What, what moved them? That's really cool that a guy like Paul can come in and have that kind of authority. I want to do that too. I want the pleasure of casting out a demon. And I'm not going to tell the story I've told before, but I heard a minister actually talk about that, how one of the things he was going to miss in heaven was casting out devils. <laughs> what did Jesus say about that? Don't rejoice that the, that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. All right? But anyway, these guys, including the seven sons of Sceva, say, wow, isn't that cool what Paul does? Let's try it. Uh, and we'll use the same Jesus he used. And to make sure we know it's the same Jesus he used, they didn't go up and just say, uh, hey, we adjure you in the name of Jesus. They say, we adjure you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. That'll get them because they're scared of Paul, and they were. But I love what the demon said through this guy. Uh, yeah, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is. I don't know who you are. And as a question I always ask myself when I read that passage, do they know who I am? Do they know who you are in hell? Do the, de- do the demons know your name? Because, man, there's something really cool about that. And when you walk into a room, you'd be a guy like Paul or like Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't even have to do anything. Here, the demon responded after they tried to exercise it. Jesus just showed up on the scene. And from afar off, the demons would be crying out through a possessed man, What do we have to do with you, son of the Most High? Have you come to torment us before our time? Would you like to have that kind of impact? Yeah, I would. And so what the lesson there is, don't try to do any of this stuff secondhand. Don't fear demons. 
but you be full of the Holy Ghost and power. And, and the fact is, it wasn't just the fact that uh, the demons didn't know the seven sons of Sceva as much as it was the seven sons of Sceva didn't know Jesus. They only knew the Jesus that Paul preached. It wasn't the Jesus that they knew or the Jesus that they preached. You get to know Jesus, and you don't have to worry about any demand, uh, demonic manifestation. Uh, you don't need to fear any of this stuff. You can deal with it when it shows up. Believe me. All right? The next thing, though, is uh, the, uh, the thing that we see happening here is those who were involved in magic. Now, how many was that? I don't know. But when they brought in their books to burn them, the value of them was 50, let's say 50,000. That's 50,000. 50,000. What was it? 50,000 pieces of silver. And some say that each one of these pieces of silver represented a day's wage. It's a lot of money in those books. So it's either a handful of people with a library full of uh, witchcraft books or a lot of people. But what I want you to see is they destroyed these things. Now, what kind of magic were they involved in? I don't know. I really don't. Were they deep into the dark arts? Some of them probably were. I strongly suspect in an enlightened society, many of them weren't. It was a hobby, though. It was something that they kept around because it was fun. It was interesting. And this is something that was a much, much more openly talked about back in the 80s. Maybe we're too couth or too educated now. But the fact is... Let me tell you, that is one piece of scriptural evidence, and there are others, that Christians should have nothing to do with things like Ouija boards, uh, f- uh, anything you do fun that toys with the things that the Bible says are wrong. It's sorcery, okay? It is uh, witchcraft. But you say, well, I'm just playing. Why would you play with stuff like that? horoscopes. Now, I understand they can be funny to read, but there are some people, well, I don't take it too seriously, but I do glance at it every day. Help me kind of plan my day. And it's nuts. This blows me away. You open up a news feed. I do anyway. Uh, Every day I look, see what the head, I get most of my news from a news page on the internet. I'll open it up. You will never I will. I have never seen. Hey, here's what the Bible says about if you're having a problem like this. Here, I guess maybe you'll see. It's usually a sponsored thing where somebody's taking some kind of a crazy angle on it. Here's what the Bible says about money, um, but it's never a good solid sermon on money. But usually, stuff about Christianity is really looked down on in the mainstream news. All right, as uh, Steve Taylor wrote years ago, a Christian can't get equal time unless he's a loony or committing a crime. That's when you'll see Christians in the news, right? But right there in the news feed will be at once a week. uh, Good news for Leos. Why it's a good time to be a Capricorn. Your horoscope for the week. And treating it like it's actual news. And they know it's just fun stuff, but people take this stuff seriously. Come on, and I like, there might be. Some, I'm, 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 I don't have anybody. I, I can't think of anybody in here. So, I mean, we all know horoscopes are wrong, right? Hmm. 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 Okay. All right. I'm not saying that horoscopes are going to send you to hell. All right. I'm saying little things like that. They open the door for other things. And somebody said, "Well, you know, uh, I was uh, I was bending spoons the other day, or I was uh, you know who knows what, what people people use for guidance when the Bible tells us we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside us." We have the one who put the stars into place. 
dwelling on the inside, why would we look to the stars for guidance? Okay? Uh, and books and, and, and uh, oh my goodness, the, the things, the party games we used to play that you guys used to play. Uh, <laughs> we, we, levitation and things like that. Uh, we would mess with this stuff. Oh, uh, shut off all the lights and speak into a mirror and say, what? What would you say? Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. We, we had the weirdo people would say, uh, uh, I think it started, you were supposed to say a Hail Mary in a dark mirror. Anybody ever play this game as a, as a nobody, nobody ever did? Mm, yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Give that good, loud no. It was scary. But the thing was, if you said it long enough, you'd start to see a red dot in the middle of the mirror. And the darker it was, the clearer it was. And then the red dot would grow, and it would grow. And if you said it long enough, a hand would come out and grab you. So you'd say it just until you saw the red dot, and then you'd stop. And, of course, you'd always see the red dot. He wasn't that fun. Playing with demons, man. And don't play with that stuff. All right? It's dangerous. It'll suck the life out of you. I'm not saying uh, that you're going to go to hell because you had a... uh, Uh, some tarot cards in your house or tea leaves or something like that. I'm saying these people were so convicted and so moved by the power of God that they just packed these books up and burned them. It's like, let's don't have anything to do with this stuff anymore. Uh, Praise and worship team, come on up here. What is this? Why the heck would you end a sermon there? Well, like I said, it wasn't my plan to end it there. But I want you good and fresh for where I really did want to end it. So stand up and listen to me while I, while I uh, make this point. When you come to Christ, and this, I guess, is a little bit of a preview for uh, next week. You are not, I hope, just coming to Christ so that you can be forgiven of your sin. I totally get, because I was one of those guys, that your primary motive the moment you came to Christ might have been, I don't want to go to hell. Maybe you responded to an altar call because a minister had just painted a very vivid picture of hell. I am for that. Jesus talked about hell. Escaping hell is a very legitimate motive. It's just not all there is to it. We're not just being saved from hell. We're being saved from sin. And so in turning from hell, we need to be turning from sin. Where we're going next week is what what are we turning toward? Because if our approach is, well, I don't want to go to hell, but what am I going to have to give up? Does that mean I'm going to have to throw away my witchcraft books? Or my toys. All they are, they're just, they're just leftover games from childhood. I don't want to pitch them. They might be worth something. Yeah, they might be worth uh, 50,000 silver coins. But they didn't sell them, did they? They burned them. But if your approach is, what do I have to give up in order to receive salvation? You're in a very dangerous position because you're basically of the mindset that you can earn it or even purchase your salvation with something that you give up. When we need to be looking at and say, this is a free gift from God, if he's going to give me a new life and the new life that he's offering me is eternal life, oh, what can I give him? 
Because I'll give, I'll give him anything just as a response, not to purchase it. It ought to be easy. What God offers us is immeasurably more value than anything our commitment to Christ is going to cost us. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.